Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Joseph Ward, Dean of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. He's editor of an interesting new book titled European Empires in the American South. The subtitle is Colonial and Environmental Encounters. It examines the process of European expansion into a region that's come to be known as the American South. Found this uh, blurb on the back of the book uh, interesting. This is Robbie Etheridge, professor of anthropology at University of Mississippi. He says, in this volume, Ward has collected a group of scholars who profoundly rethink the American South, the American colonies, and imperialism. Reading these essays, one will never think of the South as the land of cotton and slaves, or of the most important colonial action taking place far in the New England colonies, or of the imperial project as a well-oiled machine. Indeed, European empires and American South put these myths to bed, finally. Uh, so that's, uh, well, first of all, welcome, yeah, Dean Ward. To be here. Thanks for the opportunity to, to be with you. Uh, so where I want to start, uh, you know, in, in school, I, I know in, in, in school for myself, I learned that the most important region was New England. And, uh, oh, by the way, maybe Virginia, but the interior south certainly we didn't learn much about as important to uh, the United States as it became. Um, so that's one I guess, emphasis that we uh, want to put to bed here. And you have an interesting um, personal journey. You went from uh, Massachusetts to Mississippi yes. in your academic career. Yes, I, I, I grew up in New England. And uh, and perhaps not surprisingly, in New England, uh, we also learned that New England was the most important right. uh, a part of the country. And uh, when I had the opportunity to join the faculty at, at the University of Mississippi in the history department, um, it really began for me a, a personal journey of, of learning. Um, wonderful colleagues uh, in the history department, but, but elsewhere, English department, uh, anthropology, sociology, African-American studies, Southern studies. Um, the conversation was wide-ranging, and it often came back to uh, just an appreciation for how complex and diverse uh, the South has always been. Hmm. Uh, so, the interesting starting point for the, the essays in this volume, uh, after Europeans began to cross the Atlantic with confidence, that's one thing I, you, know, you don't think about, it's the first, the, it's the explorers, and it's pretty perilous, but then that's an in, important transition point when we feel like we can take our families, I, I guess, and, and make it. Yes, I mean, you know, so Columbus, 1492, but it's not until the 1520s that the Spanish begin to engage with, you know, what we think of as Mexico today, Central America, uh, in a significant way. Uh, and it's going to be really another century before the English and the French uh, begin to, to in, engage with North America. So yeah. it, it, it's really, it takes quite a while. Uh, so you were talking before we went on the air, an interesting perspective. Um and, and you find it in the book as well, uh, the people who came to live in, in, in the New World, this, this just across the Atlantic, but, but quite new, uh, sought, I guess understandably, to bring the way of life they had before. Yeah, so there, that's one of the, the important differences between uh, the way the New England colonies in the 17th century were uh, settled from the European perspective, uh, in, in the colonies in the South, Virginia, Carolinas, and eventually Georgia. New England, uh, there tended to be family groups that would move together uh, and establish um, communities uh, based around a congregational church, um, agriculture. Uh, you know, the climate in New England is not all that different than it is in, in, in parts of England. But in, in the southern colonies, um, a different approach was taken, um, much more reliance on indentured servants. These were young English people, largely men, some women, largely men, um, who were brought over for a period of several years. It was a contractual relationship and expected to do hard labor. Uh, that didn't always go well. Uh, and after a few generations of that, um, the, the governors, the investors, came to the realization it wasn't working. They just weren't uh, producing the amount of uh, commodity that they needed to justify the investment. So that's when um, they really turned their attention to bringing in African slaves uh, from from the Caribbean initially. So uh, indentured servants, these were citizens. Yes, they had right? rights. You, you couldn't you couldn't abuse them as much as you could African uh, slaves. No, they 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 had they had rights. Um, yeah. African slaves were property. They were chattel. 
Uh, and that's a profound difference. And so I think that's when you begin to see um, the southern colonies really moving in a in a importantly different direction. Hmm. No, why did it? Uh, why were those differences? It was different different crops, different commodities that you were trying to produce. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, tobacco. Now they they did grow some tobacco uh, in the Connecticut River, for example. Um, but uh, in in New England, it was more of a kind of self subsistence economy uh, around agriculture. Uh, in the South, they were trying to initially grow tobacco. That was the hot commodity in the sixteen uh, twenties and and thirties. But then over time. Uh, they became very interested in growing sugar. Sugar was, the, the in many ways, the most significant international commodity uh, in the 17th and, and 18th centuries. And again, backbreaking, very labor intensive, uh, and and you know the kind of thing that doesn't uh, uh, tend to attract you know families from England. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting. African slavery wasn't viewed quite the way it came to be viewed in, you know, say the antebellum South or the, or the, uh, you know, the Civil War era. It, it came to be, I guess, a justification underpinnings were sought, became to be seen as a positive good, at least from the white perspective. Well, it, you know, we have to uh, recognize that there was a cultural system of white supremacy that uh, Europeans used to to justify what they were doing. But fundamentally, uh, the Europeans uh, were dealing with, from their perspective, a scarcity of labor. Uh, if we go back to the 16th century, there was a, there were a series of factors uh, that decimated the um, native populations in the Americas. Um, first of all, being exposed to uh, diseases such as smallpox uh, that Europeans brought with them, and for which there hadn't been previous exposure. That had a huge effect. Um, there were some climatic changes, you know, periodic uh, fluctuations as, you know, happens, periods of drought, follow-up periods of, of uh, flooding. But with the decimated population, the uh, native economies were just upended, and that created political instability, uh, which created a context for intensive rivalries and wars amongst native societies. And so as the Europeans became increasingly engaged in the period, that, uh, the, the, the region that we discuss uh, in the book during the period we discuss it, they are, the Europeans are needing to have significant labor supply so that they can maximize the productive potential of the land that has been relatively depopulated by all this conflict and, and demographic decline. I want to read uh, from your introduction uh, to the book. Again, we have Joseph Ward, who's editor of this volume, European Empires in the American South. Um, let's see. The would-be imperialists convinced themselves to subscribe to at least two clearly false assumptions. Uh, I guess we're looking back, right? Yes. We, we know they're false. We know they're false. We know they they're false. didn't know they were yeah. false. And these are the assumptions. That they had the skill and ability to remake the distant lands in their own image. And that the enterprise would uh, quickly prove to be immensely profitable. Uh, so these are the two false assumptions. Let, let's maybe tackle the first of those. They they did you know natural. You want to remake this new land in in your own image. Yes, and and uh, they had theories of of environment that led them to think that they could easily transport uh, their ways of life across the ocean and that it would it would work out well. At the same time, they were undertaking some uh, really interesting experiments. As one of our chapters um, talks about, they, they tried to introduce mulberry bushes and, and silkworms into Virginia, um, uh, silk being a highly lucrative uh, product that uh, the, the English would have to import from, from the East. Uh, and so they just had these ideas that this would be quick and easy, uh, and and as those ideas were proven uh, to be false, they had to scramble and come up with with new ideas on on, on the fly. Uh, parts of the South, especially as you move toward the Gulf Coast, the the climate is profoundly different than it is uh, in England. Now it may not be all that different from parts of Southern Europe, but the the Europeans really struggled 
uh, over time to figure out what crops they could grow. Um, could they subsist on, on what they could grow locally or would they need to involve themselves in trade with other colonies? Uh, it became far more complex than they, than they initially thought. Of course, you know, uh, from the Spanish onward, the ideal was to find uh, gold and silver uh, lying about. The Spanish had some success from their perspective with that in, in Central and South America. But uh, for the, the English and the French in North America, that just it wasn't it wasn't panning out. So they had to find things uh, to grow. Um, so they 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 learned. They you know there's a lot of trial and error, um, but it was far less uh, profitable uh, than they imagined it would be. This did pay off for the Europeans uh, later on. Over time. Over time. Yeah. Over time. Um, uh, the uh, Several essays uh, will talk about how some of the lessons learned uh, at high cost of, of, of financial cost and human cost, um, the, the Europeans would be able to apply later on in the um, uh, what we often think of as the uh, most significant age of European imperialism uh, in Africa and in, in Central and East Asia uh, during the 19th centuries. Um, you know, how do you establish control over a region far away? How do you maintain communication? How do you, how do you give um, the local officials in the colony enough um, autonomy so they can make quick uh, decisions on your behalf? And also, um, it, it's just so crucial to point out, um, and this is also something that's in all the high school history books, that over time, the, the trade around the Atlantic, the so-called the triangular trade, where where uh, goods or perhaps gold would be brought from Europe to Africa, exchange for slaves. Uh, slaves would be brought to the Caribbean and then from there into the Americas. Um, commodities or somewhat refined products like molasses would then be brought uh, back to Europe and the cycle would repeat. With each spin of that wheel, more and more wealth accumulated in Europe. And so um, you know, I, I'm an historian of the 17th century. Uh, the 17th century is often seen as the golden age of this or that, the golden age of Spanish literature, the golden age of Dutch painting. Uh, it's in many ways the, the high point of the scientific revolution in England. When you think about figures like Robert Boyle and John Locke and Isaac Newton, well, all of these amazing cultural achievements are to some degree built on a foundation of wealth that had been brought in from the New World. So the Europeans were accumulating wealth and intellectual capital that would then be deployed later on uh, in this uh, much more expansive empire of the 19th century. So, uh, you know, the, the wealth, the, the, the actual crops, the commodity is easier to wrap your mind around, but uh, you talk about intellectual capital. There are things Europeans learned from these imperial adventures yeah, no question. Uh, you know, again, we have to emphasize that this is a process that took many generations. But just the idea of conducting a survey of a new territory, there are certain techniques that you have to develop um, so that you can record things in a way that other people will find accessible and useful. Uh, learning about new types of plants, uh, you know, uh, obviously we, again, it's very familiar with things like the potato and maize, corn, you know, things like that. But I would say more importantly, it was the, it was the process, okay, through which you acquire and utilize new knowledge. That was terribly important. Uh, from the European perspective. It wasn't necessarily how they would have articulated it in the 17th or even 18th centuries, but I think long-term that had a very important consequence. Mm -hmm. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, talk about, um, we tend to see history as inevitable, right? Um, of course, the Europeans were going to sweep across the, the continent because we're looking at it as a fait accompli. But um, reading this book uh, has brought to my mind that uh, these colonies were vulnerable. These, you know, you'd do, you'd you'd call a, a, a fragile little thing a fort, and then claim 
you know, vast tracts of land, it was by no means inevitable that uh, it was going to work out that way. I want to maybe talk about that and much more. The book is European Empires in the American South. Joseph Ward is the editor. He's also dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU. More following this break. Programming on... Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the George S. Eccles Ice Center's Spice on Ice Culinary Event and Auction. Tuesday, March 20th, a dining experience prepared and served by Cache Valley Chefs. Table and ticket information available at 435-787-228 or EcclesIce.com. On the next Living on Earth, a trip to a Rhode Island beach to find wayward tropical fish. These fish are gonna, they're, they're gonna die because of the water turning cooler as the fall and winter comes. So, um, hey, might as well take the opportunity to rescue them. The marine biologist turned rescue artist. I'm Jamie Kaiser, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Production speed is of the essence for companies trying to manage their inventories. Right now, companies have to order 18, 24 months before the goods actually hit the floor, and it's so hard to predict what consumers are going to want. I'm Kai Rizdal Lasers and your Levi's Jeans, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and we're talking with Joseph Ward. He is dean of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. He's a historian and editor of a new book titled "European Empires in the American South." Subtitle is "Colonial and Environmental Encounters." It's out from University Press of Mississippi. And you're welcome to join the conversation if you would like at 800-826-1495 or by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. So, Dean Ward, after, uh, before the break, I referenced uh, the, the vulnerability of the enterprise, the fact that we tend to see history as inevitable looking you know, back at it. Um, there's a, I can't remember the, the name of the fort, but uh, one, of, one of the contributors to the volume talked about this. You could hardly call it a fort. It's in South Carolina. <laughs> and based on that, okay, we've established a fort, and based on this, we now claim you know, what would now be many states and the, the huge swath of territory but uh and and so this is this is the idea of empire right this is this is the aspiration this is the ambition no means certain that this would actually happen yeah i i don't want to say that it was all a bunch of real estate speculation but it does have a certain real estate speculation vibe to it if you build it they will come you know how do you convince somebody living uh, in England or France or Spain to move to a part of the world they've never seen, uh, a journey that is you know, risky. Are we even going to make it there? So there has to be a sense of security established. And sometimes the projection of power is, is power. And that's a lot was going on. Uh, the Spanish and the British, the British and the French, there were these these very broad border regions between their what we might today call spheres of influence. Uh, and there was a lot of projection. Um, you know, you can't come within X miles of this spot on the map because we put our flag there first. Well, how are you going to defend that claim? So there, there was a lot of that going on. If you're going to get investors back home to put money into the enterprise, if you're going to get convince people to move to a place where you have a tremendous labor shortage, you got to be able to project power. So, yeah, I think there was a certain amount of puffery mm-hmm. uh, involved in this process. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, you, you do have actual real European powers backing you up, but they're back across the Atlantic. Yeah, it's, it's hard to just send a text uh, and, and have the fleet show up in, within a few hours. So these are, these are small uh, contingents of, of forces, um, regiment size, uh, representing uh, empires. Uh, and it was, it was tense. And we need to really keep in mind that 
uh, for certainly as so you go to the interior of what we today would think of as the American Southeast, Native American nations were the powers. The Creek, the Yamasee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, they were much better organized, much stronger. Uh, and so at first, you know, they were trying to, in some ways, manipulate the Europeans and get them to intervene in their own pre-existing conflicts. But over time, the balance of power shifted, and the Europeans began to try to manipulate uh, the native uh, nations. So that's that's a big part of the story, especially in the the latter decades of the 17th century and, and into uh, the 18th century. I wonder if you could expand on that. This is, you know, the, the Indian tribes are the power centers, yep. and then that, cha- that shifts. Um, we tend to see this through the lens of more of the 19th century, where once the United States was the power, then it became raw force. And, and you know, we're expelling Native American tribes from, from their lands at, at this point. So how did that shift happen, where the Europeans became more power? Because when, when they arrived, it was... It was they had to negotiate. They had exactly. to, you know, they didn't have that raw power. They were looking. They were looking to trade initially, uh, and then as they be- developed their trade networks, they had to protect the tribes with the, the nations with whom they were trading, and they had to then compete with the other European powers to carve out these spheres. That takes several generations to unfold. Let me just take half a step back. Uh, 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 Europeans are going to come to dominate the continent of Africa in the 19th century. In the 16th and 17th centuries, that would have been impossible. The, the, the African societies were far larger, better organized, and, and so the Europeans had to trade with the Africans for slaves. Okay? The idea that you're going to take people in chains, in boats across the ocean, and have them work for you is is it's really far-fetched. It's, it's not anything that you could justify in economic terms. Forget about the, the immorality and criminality of it. But the reason Europeans are doing that is because they couldn't conquer Africa. They didn't have the power to do that. The reason why they needed the slaves uh, in the New World is because of the depopulation, the decimation of native societies because of disease and other factors that disrupted the local economies. And so from the European perspective, they're trying to figure out, okay, we're, we're not powerful enough to conquer Africa. We are relatively powerful enough to conquer much of, of the Americas, but there's not a population base there. So all of this is, again, trial and error, figuring it out. They would prefer to trade. They found that very profitable. But over time, the profitability declined as the rivalries intensified. So the Europeans found themselves increasingly engaging in the conflicts among uh, the native nations. And so then, as the 18th century progressed, those conflicts really began to take a toll on native societies. The European colonial populations did begin to take root and grow and begin to push westward. And that will culminate in the various treaties and, and acts of legislation, 1830-1832, which we, which we think of as Indian removal, in which the Creek, Seminole, Choctaw, Chickasaw are, are relocated forcibly, coercively uh, to the Indian territories that we, we think of as Oklahoma. So that's a, that's a process that's going to you know, start to finish, take a couple hundred years to play out. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that a big part of this is is decimation of population through the disease and, and the things that that happen. Yep. We setting aside the the uglier aspects which you've just referenced. It's a big set aside, but setting that aside, I th- think we like to think of this as more you know powerful ideals, right? Enlightenment ideals as as filtered through uh, you know through these uh, European colonists, and that's why the Europeans won out. So, uh, you know, part of this uh, is a little bit of my own um, growing understanding of how little I understand about these processes. Um, The University of Mississippi uh, opened its doors in 1848. Well, Oxford, Mississippi is located in the the north-central part of the state. Uh, In 1848, that was the front—that was was the, the west— 
from the perspective of the United States. So in your removal, 1830, 1832, which uh, enabled um, U.S. citizens to move into northern Mississippi from the Carolinas, Georgia, um, the interior slave trade. The British had had really stepped back from the international slave trade, but there was a very robust uh, internal slave trade. Walter Johnson, a very important historian, has written extensively about this, moving uh, slaves from Virginia and the Carolinas through the Gulf Coast up through New Orleans and up through Mobile. So in, in 1848, when the University of Mississippi begins, you have a society that is based on the institution of African slavery that itself is based on Indian removal. These are intertwined events that have a very clear racialized ideological justification. Um, the, the Mississippi uh, Declaration of Secession at the start of the Civil War is incredibly stark. Uh, in its language. Uh, my, my colleague John Neff, a uh, brilliant uh, uh, historian and teacher of, of the U.S. Civil War at the University of Mississippi, he, he always made sure that his students uh, in his Civil War class would, would read that so they would understand that from the perspective of the people who made the decision to break with the Union. African slavery was the basis of their civilization. Hmm. And it was, it was entirely an interpretation of race. Black-skinned people, from their perspective, were simply well-suited to the type of labor required to grow the crops, in this case cotton, that made their lifestyle possible. Mm-hmm. So as I, as I gained more of an understanding with the help of many colleagues, uh, it was hard to see this enterprise as the result of some enlightenment uh, project. One of you know David Brand Davis, another uh, great historian of of these issues, you know, emphasizes how a period in which in the United States you have these elevated principles, these elevated discussions about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that is made possible in many cases by a society that's based on the unfreedom of large numbers of people. Right? Jefferson was a great slave owner. Uh, so these are these are some of the the, the paradoxes, some of the, the 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 difficult contradictions within the American heritage, and this continues to today, right? These, these some of these paradoxes have not been resolved. Well, it 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 is challenging, um, and and part of what inspired me to um, to put this project together that resulted in. In the volume, I, I just find it very challenging when people will assert that America is this or it, it is this other thing. It, it's from my perspective, it's incredibly complex, and and when you look at the South, although it is tempting, um, you know, in, in popular culture, you know, I, I you know when I was a kid growing up in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, you know, in, in in high school, you know, we read To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, it's just it, it's just so stark. It's it's black and white. And while those issues are continuing to be of great consequence, what I have learned is how the American South is, as it always has been, a place of great complexity. It is, as it always has been, a multiracial, multi-ethnic space in which people, a variety of traditions and cultures, have been um, interacting constructively or unconstructively for many hundreds of years. And so it, it, when, when people want to simplify things into a binary, uh, I, I just think that's, that's very, very unsatisfying. Hmm. Just one, one thing comes to mind, and I, I don't have to convince a historian that history matters, but, um, um, you know, the... the President Trump having a portrait of Andrew Jackson in the, I think it's in the Oval Office. That's that's significant, and 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 it's also significant how he views Jackson and and how he uses that as a prism, right? And it may or may not be accurate to, to history. 
I I um I I would uh, you know I'm an historian of of London primarily in the 17th century, and so I I would find it difficult to reflect with any sophistication on the presidency of Andrew Jackson. Um, but um, uh, one of the key aspects of his administration was Indian removal. And, and I think it's, it's just so important um, uh, to, to recognize the tremendous human toll, right? Again, um, from the perspective of some people, Indian removal created all these great, wonderful opportunities for development. But it was at a human cost, um, and and obviously these issues are not uh, confined exclusively to the Southeast. Um, many aspects of American history in the 19th century involved um, uh, violence against uh, Native Americans, uh, creating opportunities for for others. Hmm. Uh, so you're talking about a, a, a advocating for a more complex view of the what became the American South. Um, I I don't know if you would agree with this characterization that we, it, the, the the popular conception, and maybe even in schools has, has is a kind of a more simplified view. Um, how how would uh, having a, a more broadly disseminated, more complex view of of the American South, how would that change how we think about the U.S. today? Do you think? Well. Uh I'm I'm someone um, for whom uh, the more I study history, uh, the more I appreciate how little I know. So I'm an advocate for uh, acknowledging the complexity because that's acknowledging uh, how limited our understanding is. Uh, I, I know that that can sometimes be frustrating. Um, uh, you know, students um, often prefer it when we give them clear answers to questions, you know, why did this happen? Um, but I, I think it's more, from my perspective, uh, honest to acknowledge that we don't know things and that uh, when we distill um, very complicated issues into sound bites, uh, we, are, we are missing far more than we are, we are gaining. So that, you know, that's a, that's a long-winded, highfalutin kind of academic uh, response. But, but that's really what I want to start with, um, is that uh, when you feel that someone is giving you a very simple answer to a very complicated question, it's okay to be unsatisfied with that. Hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about the idea of empire. One of the two false assumptions that you put at the, the, the introduction is that the Europeans thought they could impose, I guess, in, in essence, the, their idea of themselves, their identity of their, their communities, can impose this on a totally new land. Um, one idea that I found uh, fascinating uh, was the assist, insistence by some Europeans of this idea of geosymmetry, that, uh, it, it, that places around the globe, if they're on similar latitude, ought to be pretty much the same, right? And um, that affected... Uh, their assumptions about what crops would thrive on a certain area. And, and of course, sometimes places of a similar latitude do have a similar climate, but often they don't. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, any, any uh, ambitious enterprise is going to be based on a certain set of assumptions. And given the intellectual uh, context of especially the 17th century, you know, it's this period of transition, uh, post-Renaissance, so, you know, many of the um, ideas inherited from the ancient Greeks and Romans were really being challenged. Um, and the scientific revolution, as we, as we think of it, was, was underway, but inconclusive. And so a lot of hypotheses were being, were being generated. Uh, and again, trial and error, lots of mistakes happened. But over time, the Europeans were able to accumulate enough wealth that they could afford to make mistakes. Hmm. Yeah, that's the key, right? Yeah, they could afford they could afford to make mistakes. Just before we go to break, um, interesting, very interesting person in the book. It's the chapter on the uh, on the attempt to grow mulberry trees and yes. get a silk trade. A young woman, her name is Virginia, uh, is doing experiments. Yes, it, it, very interesting. I guess this is an age of science, and she, she's participating. She, she's she's she, she's beginning to. Uh, this is a chapter by uh, Allison 
Margaret Bigelow of uh, the University of Virginia. It's a, it's a wonderful chapter, and it's the one I, I selected to begin the volume because I thought it brought so many of these of these issues uh, in, in into play. Yes, they're starting to they're starting to write things down. They're starting to record. Uh, this is a, this is an age of 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 diaries. Um, we've got uh, a chapter uh, later on uh, by by Bob Owell of the University of Texas on on John Bartram's travels in Florida later in the 18th century. It's a similar sort of thing where letters and diaries become important kind of scientific records, uh, and and people are trying to put up put it all together, come up with new hypotheses, new explanations, and the bottom line is, of course, they're trying to figure out. What they can make money out of, mm-hmm. well, and you know, the, very much peace with today, right? It's it's a it's a human, it's a human need. We are we are still engaging in some similar economic practices. Yes, let's uh, take a break. The book is European Empires in the American South. We have Joseph Ward with us. He's editor of the book. He's also dean of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie and restaurant reviews. Available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. And Culligan Water of Logan, serving Cache Valley for more than 66 years. Providing Culligan bottled water, whole home water systems, soft and conditioned water. Hey Culligan Man service from the Man in Blue. Details at culliganlogan.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, what do CEOs actually do? We get inside the life of these rare and rarefied creatures. It's frankly a horrible job. I wouldn't want it. Also, CEO origin stories, unlikely triumphs, and how to recover from a really, really bad mistake. I blew the roof off the factory. Fortunately, no one was killed. It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio congratulates Utah State University professor Nancy Huntley, who has been named a fellow of the Ecological Society of America. Huntley previously served as program director of the National Science Foundation's Division of Environmental Biology and Long-Term Ecological Research Programs. She is a professor in USU's Department of Biology and serves as the director of the USU Ecology Center. Huntley will be formally recognized during the ESA's annual August meeting in New Orleans. Kudos to Nancy Huntley from Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with uh, Joseph Ward, Dean of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences and editor of a new book titled European Empires in the American South, Colonial and Environmental Encounters. Um, I want to start this segment, Dean Ward, with, uh, with this idea of empire, powerful idea. And it wasn't just the Europeans, right? You, you had uh, some Native American leaders uh, adopting this. Yeah, right. The Aztec um, Empire, the Inca Empire. Right, right. Uh, there's an interesting uh, chapter on a Mary Bosomworth um, who started calling herself Empress. Um, and this is, I mean, you can call yourself Empress. That's not going to stick, but it's it's an attempt to project your yourself and your and, and a certain power into the world. Yes, at some point you you have to back it up. Um, the chapter you reference is by uh, Joshua Piker. Uh, who's at the College of William and Mary, and uh, it it is a wonderful chapter in in showing how ideas from Europe can interact with ideas that were already in place among Native Americans, uh, and or the arrival of Americans. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the arrival of Europeans into America create opportunities for Native Americans to um, sort of experiment with their own forms of representation. And Mary Bosomworth is uh, an example of that. And, you know, if she had convinced the British to see things her way, uh, she might have gotten away with what she mm-hmm. wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's you know, both sides are kind of um, looking at each other. There's a little bit of a, I don't want to say game that, that minimizes the consequence, but there there is a certain amount of um, political experimentation going on at this point. Um, who are we dealing with? Well, you know what? I'm not sure who you are, but you might be useful to me, so I'm going to take you at your word. Mm-hmm. 
There's a lot of that going on. Um, this is a foggy diplomatic uh, situation where many of the people making decisions had very limited information. Uh, and they made, they made decisions that sometimes had disastrous consequences. Uh, I want to talk about how uh, people, especially Europeans, saw themselves. This, this uh, quote interesting, page 141. I can't remember which essay this was. Uh, the, the people are talking about they saw themselves as denizens of uh, Anglo-Atlantic rather than old world versus new world. Yes, yeah, so that's a chapter by uh, Travis Glasson of uh, Temple University, and really thinking uh, about the opportunity to build a new type of empire. The 18th century in the European context is one in which, for example, in France, you have absolutism, right? The reign of Louis XIV, uh, then 15th, and, and ultimately uh, 16th, really trying to create a, a dynamic power center. In uh, France, of course, had been in many ways the superpower on the continent for centuries uh, at, at, at that point. And so the British, you know, sensing that their opportunity was going to be out in the ocean. There, there really wasn't much opportunity for, uh, in, in it's Great Britain from the early 18th century with the, with the formal union of England in uh, Scotland. There just isn't going to be an opportunity for, for Britain to uh, challenge France's dominance of the continent. So they look, the British look out to the ocean and they create um, a kind of financial political system. Coming out of the late 17th century, you get the creation of the Bank of England, the stock exchange, uh, the national debt, which at that time was considered a good thing because people were investing in the government. The government was then of the crown, was then going to go out and expand opportunities that the merchants who were the ones lending the money to the crown were then going to capitalize. This is the age of mercantilism. There was a sense that you could measure the wealth of your nation by how much gold and silver you had in your vaults. And so that's a big driving force, uh, particularly as Spain begins to, to, to um, really encounter a number of significant challenges in the 18th century. So increasingly, it's going to become a contest between the British and the French. I think everyone will recall that, of course, the uh, the 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 uh, I sometimes refer to them as the revolting Americans uh, were successful because they had support from France. Yeah, yeah, it's true. The, the the other big power, right? Yeah. And and so, uh, in addition to uh, a Declaration of Independence, uh, another uh, uh, very significant event in 1776 was the publication of Adam Smith's *The Wealth of Nations* in which he challenges the ideal behind mercantilism. And Smith suggests that you do not necessarily measure the wealth of your nation by how much gold and silver you have in your vault. It's the well-being of your people. That's a very radical uh, change uh, in, in worldview. And so this, this idea of an oceanic empire that the British were really embracing in the 18th century is connected to the mercantilist competition between Britain uh, in France. Hmm. Uh, so we Adam Smith, these ideas are just conventional wisdom now, right? But it's interesting to see it as as a radical new idea. Well, <clears throat> you know, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I'm choosing my words uh, very carefully. Um, Smith gave several – I mean, it, uh, The Wealth of Nations is a very long book. Uh, and there are a couple of sort of compelling anecdotes. Uh, one is the, the pin makers where he describes the, the division of labor and how five people can make uh, more pins in a day if each one focuses on one aspect of the pin making process than if all five tried to make pins entirely on their own. But – I've always drawn to his discussion of Scottish wine. Uh, Smith, who of course is Scottish, um, points out, you know, with greenhouses, it's possible to grow grapes in Scotland. 
And it's conceivable that you could make a wine from those grapes that someone might actually want to drink. But why do that? Why go to all that effort if the French are much better at it than the Scots? So we in Scotland, from Smith's perspective, should figure out what we do better than the French and trade that with the French for wine. So this whole idea of laissez-faire, which is often interpreted as get government out of people's affairs, uh, is also, I think, a strong manifesto for free trade and the interdependence of nations leading to the overall well-being of the people of all nations. So I'm not sure um, these days how, how well uh, Adam Smith's ideals actually are being embraced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you made allusion there. Um, uh, these what you could call historical concepts are in the headlines right now. Yes. Um, and uh, the, the whole debate is raging to today. And uh, I'm sure beyond. Um, you are welcome to join this conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. We have historian uh, Joseph Ward, who's dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University here with us. He's editor of a new book called European Empires in the American South. You can reach us by email to uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com as well. And... Uh, it appears we have a uh, caller, Georgia. So, Dean, I'll ask you to put your headphones on. Georgia in Cedar City. Georgia, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. Good morning, Dean Ward. Uh, good morning, uh, UPR. Uh, my question was, did these countries see, that were they really looking long-range for themselves when they tried to do empire stuff, or did they just want to make sure another country didn't get ahead of them? What What was their driving you know, what drilled them the most, uh, long-range vision for their own wealth, their own desire, or just competition with other countries that might be building empires? Uh, Georgia, thank you for that question. Um, I will I will attempt uh, to answer it briefly, although I, I would just say out of fairness I could spend most of the rest of the morning talking with you about this subject. Um I would say, uh, referencing the mercantilist ideal, that it's going to be a little bit of both. I, I, here I am uh, 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 refusing to be, to be pinned down, but it's a, it is a little bit of both. That they defined, uh, the European powers at the time, defined wealth as a pie of limited size. And so in order to pursue their maximum wealth, they would have to try to minimize the wealth of their competitors. So it, 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 that's, that's kind of one of the, the, the key aspects of, of the mercantilist uh, system uh, that, was, that was flourishing at the time. And, and against, again, uh, Adam Smith pushed hard uh, against that. In terms of the long-range, short-range, that's a fascinating question. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure that there was... Uh, one approach to that issue, but I, I really appreciate you you raising the question because uh, much of the policy of the British Crown in the 18th century the was being I mean, driven sort of by the merchants crown, who were they? loaning the money <laughs> to the Crown. They wanted their loans paid back. Uh, they wanted certain rights that they could profit from. And so Individual merchants may be making decisions that reflect their own kind of immediate term interests and needs, but when grouped together, this does drive a longer term national policy. I didn't have you put your headphones back on. We'll see if uh, Georgia has a follow up question. Did that answer your question, Georgia? Yes. Uh, well, something needs to be pursued in greater depth, but it really answered the first part of it. Thank you both very okay. much. Okay. Great, right. Georgia. Thank Thanks you, Georgia. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, interesting uh, interesting question. We uh, we just have a couple of minutes uh, uh, left. I wonder, uh, you know, spending time, maybe just uh, get you to answer a takeaway question. Um, yeah, you spend a lot of time with putting this uh, volume together. What's uh, anything that especially surprised you or anything that you'd want us to take away from this discussion? Uh, the one thing I would emphasize is the sophistication of the scholarship of the individual chapters. 
putting a collection of essays together is a little bit like organizing a dinner party. You want to bring together people who not only have interesting things to say on their own, but who will engage productively in conversation with others and take you in directions that you might not have been able to predict. And I think that uh, this volume has aspects of that. I, I didn't quite anticipate how it was going to come together when we first conceived of it. But I would say the overall sophistication, the variety of sources that people are using, uh, the idea that you know a, a literary scholar will be um, uh, drawing on scientific treatises about mulberry bushes, the idea that uh, really an historian who's largely been interested in political ideas is going to be captivated by botanical uh, journals. Uh, these are these are really interesting and 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 uh, original approaches to history. Um, you know, uh, the, the the notion that uh, uh, the folks who are uh, from the British perspective trying to um, build up Calcutta are drawing on their experience of Charleston. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that never occurred to me, uh, and so I just I I am very impressed by the individual chapters. And, you know, I, I hope in some ways the, the whole of the volume is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, that, that chapter is very interesting. That And, and the uh, writer of that chapter says that Charleston at the time, I guess 17th, 18th centuries, was much more like Calcutta than Antebellum South, that we kind of view Charleston through that prism. Right? Yeah. Jonathan uh, Ecott uh, is the author of that chapter. He's at the University of California at Riverside. And, and he's looking at the design, the layout, the way the streets are arranged, the way that the central buildings command the town plazas, the, the way that that design is meant to communicate uh, the nature of power and the, the dynamism of the society. Now, that was just a, a great insight. Uh, and, you know, I, I went to grad school 30 years ago. Uh, and, you know, I just realized if I went back now, I'd have to start all over again. Mm. Yeah, the, 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 which is probably a good thing that the history advances, right? Our understanding of history yes. advances. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Um, European Empires in the American South is out from University Press of Mississippi. The editor is Joseph Ward, and he is uh, also the dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and has uh, come in for this discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Fort Lauderdale wants to build a streetcar through its growing downtown and eventually expand it across the region. A streetcar could connect these emerging districts and uh, really set the course for a new mode of public transit in a region that doesn't really see much but for buses. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Infinity Mirrors has been packing art galleries around the world for a while now. We're going to take you beyond the hype and the lineups and the selfies to take you inside the installation and get you a little closer to the reclusive artist behind it, too. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.